Hello and welcome back to episode 20. I'm sorry we've been absent for a couple weeks, but we've been very busy working on a lot of exciting new material to bring to you guys next year. Here to elaborate a little more on that is Ruri Arietta Kenna. Some of you guys may remember him as a former co-host of this podcast last year with myself and Kayla, um, but he is now the new editor-in-chief of our publication. So Ruri, why don't you let him know what we've been up to. Hi, thanks, Lucas. Well, first of all, we've rebranded as Stanford Politics. So what was the Stanford Political Journal is now Stanford Politics. And that was done so that we could kind of escape the misperception that we're an academic journal, as well as to uh, avoid confusion with our acronym, SPJ, and the acronym of Students for Justice in Palestine, SJP. Which proved to be an issue more than once, surprisingly. So, So Stanford Politics had its big launch last week. On our Facebook page, you may have seen our top 10 politicos, which we do every year. If you haven't, give it a look at facebook.com slash Stanford Politics. And then we also launched our first magazine issue, Stanford Politics Magazine. And so that has a cover story by Lucas here on polarization. And next year, we're hoping to do more coverage of campus and local politics, and we're really trying to expand and grow our presence on campus and beyond. So if you're interested in joining or you want to look at some of our content, check out stanfordpolitics.com. We have a form, an interest form for students to apply to be on our staff. Yeah, and please, please join. Really great organization. Really, really exciting things coming next year. And be sure to give that magazine a read. I'm really proud of my piece. I know Ruri's put in a tremendous amount of work and we're all really proud of the product um, so please read it but now transitioning on to this episode of Stanford Politics Podcast we've got a great interview lined up for you guys with Provost Persis Drell she started her tenure as Provost just earlier this year I conducted the interview a couple weeks ago but it's still very relevant so stay tuned for that I'm here with Provost Persis Strell. She's just started her tenure as Provost of Stanford University, and we're very excited to have her on the show. Persis Strell, thank you so much for joining us. The pleasure is all mine. So I just want to get started here, you know, talking about the topic of diversity. The Stanford Dailies magazine ran a cover story on you back in January, where, you know, they discussed how diversity was one of your priorities coming into your tenure as a provost. And the article quoted you saying, it took me a while to understand that for a young African-American student, a young Latino student, a young transgender student, or for a young female student in a STEM field, there's nothing more validating than having someone at the head of the class who looks like you. Could you just talk to us a little bit more about how you came to this understanding or realization during your time as Dean of Engineering? Well, I think I had always been to some degree aware of the issue because I had gone to a woman's college, and that was very, very important in my own personal development and the fact that I ended up going into physics. It really hit home, though, in the School of Engineering through some really very powerful stories or incidences that occurred uh, when I was there. I taught a course, and I still teach a course, where it's a physics, it's a companion course, and half the students in the class are students of color and two-thirds are female, and I just found it was it was a different experience teaching a class that was two-thirds female, so you could just feel the, the different interaction with the students. 
so I would say I, I learned from the students probably is the sure, best, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, of course. best answer. I would say it's a pretty daunting mantle to have to carry to be a role model. And so I always found that I was personally trying to not wear that mantle. But then it really just hit home that this was terribly, terribly important. Of course, naturally. And so now as provost of the whole university, are there any specific measures you're thinking of, you know, any particular actions that will help combat this issue university-wide? So that's, it's a great question, and it's one that's on my mind. And I, I wouldn't put it in a, in a combative language as much as how do we achieve what I believe is a, is a common goal among many of us, that a faculty at Stanford would reflect the diversity of our students. And I would say one of the things that I'm learning, and maybe I knew this a little bit before coming into the job, is we have a very diverse university, and diverse in the sense that the different schools have very different cultures, different ways of doing things, and that the arguments around why diversity is so important and also the steps one can take to, say, improve the diversity of the professoriate in engineering are actually not the same arguments in other parts of the university. So I'm in the learning process, but it's very much in the back of my mind as to how will I, in my role as provost, help the university on its journey to achieve that goal. You do uh, understand provosts don't hire faculty. Of course. Faculty hire faculty. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. it's indirect influence, but it can be, I think, effective and powerful, and I'm working on how that will happen. And you've talked about how sort of diversity engineering can can be different from diversity in different departments. You know, and we were speaking a little bit about ethnic and racial diversity, mm-hmm. but how would you view the role of sort of ideological diversity at the mm-hmm. university? I'd say maybe the, that plays a little bit more of a role in departments like political science, history, philosophy. Do you view that sort of as equal importance next to ethnic and racial diversity, or do, you, do they sometimes conflict, or can we mend tensions between the two? I think ideological diversity is actually very important at a university, and it's, uh, again, been a learning experience because I do come from STEM fields where this is uh, not so much of an issue. I mean, you can have political differences as individuals with your colleagues, but there is not an ideology of the field that Mm -hmm. one is dealing with. So again, I'm I'm in, in learning mode here, but I actually do believe ideological diversity is extremely important. Maybe the best way it was framed was when Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was here, and she talked about how she used to share her draft briefs with her good friend Anton Scalia, who was politically totally polar opposite, Mm -hmm. but they would share them in advance in draft form so they could sharpen their arguments against each other. And I really feel that's Part of what we want to be all learning in in a university, you know, you and I might really disagree, but I need to understand why we disagree because it'll help me understand my own position, which I think is really important. Sure. Um, I recall your predecessor, John Mm -hmm. Mendy. actually, I I remember reading it last quarter, he pen this letter entitled The Threat from Within. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I thought uh, yeah. it was uh, quite a powerful piece sure. talking about this. Yeah. So for the listeners who aren't aware, former provost John Chimendi 
wrote this article. It was a speech, I believe, to the Board of Trustees. It was a speech which then got written into uh, an article for, I believe, the Chronicle of Higher oh, Education. Okay. So, yeah, Chronicle of Higher Education. I think. Okay, yeah, <laughs> and, you know, he speaks of this threat from within. He talks about intellectual monocultures and mm-hmm. of the nature that you were just speaking of. And he outlines, you know, three ways that this threat from within has manifested itself. We've already spoken about these intellectual monocultures that sort of differ across different disciplines or different departments. And then he does mention, you know, the demands to disinvite speakers or disinvite groups from Mm -hmm. campus, which unfortunately, or, you know, has become an issue across the Bay. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering if, you know, do you take issue at all with how Berkeley handled that situation? Or how would you like to see Stanford handle that situation if that came out over here? So I can't say I actually know how Berkeley handled the situation. I read sure, different accounts takes. in the paper, and my reading of that has been cursory at least. I I will say that, I guess I was asked this by a, by a student at a meeting not long ago to speak on that same subject. I will confess that I had never, I was not aware of who Ann Coulter was. Okay. Before there was the, the explosion, uh, explosion at, at Berkeley over this issue, I now know who she is. Yeah. And I just feel that that evolution of inviting and disinviting is not something that serves the academy well. I think if you happen to disagree with a uh, speaker then uh, you don't have to go to their talk, or maybe you will go to their talk because you'll learn what their arguments are so you can sharpen your arguments Mm -hmm. against them. Mm -hmm. I was powerfully moved by a story that Raphael Reif relayed. Um, He's the president of MIT. This issue came up in a a discussion, and he relayed the story of how, uh, I guess, a group of students at MIT wanted to invite a Holocaust denier to campus. Interesting. And uh, Raphael Reif, members of his family, a fairly immediate family, died in the Holocaust. And yet, uh, so it's a very personal issue, but and yet he defended the right of the students to invite uh, such a speaker. He said he had no, personally had no desire to go, but he did not think the right thing to do was to uh, not allow that person to come speak on campus. And I, I hope I've conveyed it accurately, but yeah, I was yeah. very moved by it. Yeah, no, I'm, I am too, sitting here right now. And so I understand, you know, you obviously don't have power over these kind of things, but here at Stanford, is that something you would hope, you know, that message would be conveyed by someone in the administration? Um, yes. Yeah. I, yeah. I would uh, yeah. convey it myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually... <laughs> Um, and then, so returning to Chimendi's letter and mm-hmm. what turned into the article, the third way he speaks of how this intellectual intolerance is what he calls it, manifests itself in the university, is the constant calls for the university itself to take political stands, which is obviously another very sensitive subject. And this is something we somewhat saw this past weekend, at Admit Weekend. You know, you had students from a group bundled together called Sanctuary Now, advocating for the sanctuary status of the Stanford campus in various cities, and they took the stage during an Admit Weekend event where... Uh, my, my talk. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah. They were, I just want to say they were incredibly respectful, Yeah. and they were not disruptive. I was surprised, but I was impressed that the, in the respectful nature in which they did. Yeah, I recall, you know, Harry Elam said... It the, made a very nice statement. I think, yeah, yeah, I agree. He made... Professor Elam said, this represents something very special about Stanford, that this is happening here at this event. So... You know, we at the Political Journal were curious. 
do you generally agree with this idea that there may be particularly in particular instances in which a university should take a political stand? So we don't take political stance. I think that is not right for the institution. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, individuals can, should, can do yeah. that. I don't think the institution should take a political stand. However, there are policy issues on which we will take a stand if they threaten our core missions of research and teaching. And so when the, it seems like a long time ago now, but when the president's first executive order on immigration came out, we did take a a stand on that. We do advocate for funding for research. So those are two examples where a policy is being discussed that actually threatens our uh, core uh, mission. And then we do take a stand on the policy. So I guess maybe moving a little bit away Mm -hmm. from the diversity issue, I think we've Mm -hmm. covered that very thoroughly. Thank you so much. I think a general theme last year towards the end of the year was that law students felt or feared that the administration was somewhat out of touch and didn't really listen to student input. Is that a concern you shared coming into your to, to your time as provost, and I know you and President Tessier Levine have taken a number of measures to sort of address that. So I was just wondering if you could elaborate a little more on that topic. Sure, absolutely. It was a concern when I came into this job. Um, my perception is that there has uh, been a loss of trust between the students and the administration, and I think that's not a good thing. And yeah. so part of the energy that I've been putting in and Mark has also been putting in is to take the first steps towards starting to rebuild that trust. Mm -hmm. I think it will take work, and I would say that I I can't tell you right off the bat. I know I have a, a plan, I know how to do it, but I know it starts with communication. Communicating with students is very, very important. It's it's actually also really fun. So there are fun parts of this job, and that's going out and having dinner with students or lunch with students or meeting with student groups. I am continuing to teach. I'm going to continue to teach because, but to teach because I think it's so important. I stay in touch with the students, and besides, it's one of the most fun things I do. Mm -hmm. How how have those brown bag lunch? Have they started yet? The brown bag lunch sessions between you and President. So I don't think we've done something that we can call a brown bag, but we've had town halls. Okay, so I think it's the same thing because they've been at lunchtime. Sure, sure, sure. Any brown bags, but uh, we've had two of those sessions. I've had office hours. Mark's had office hours. Uh, the, the the town halls have been great, but I, I love the office hours. Yeah, it's more personal setting. It's more like. personal. Mm-hmm. That's more uh, um, more my comfort, comfortable style for me. Sure, and, sure. Uh, it was just really fun. So and I'm looking forward to that. Do you feel the students are very engaged and they you know they're meeting you at like halfway? I'd, so to speak. I wouldn't even require if you look at my board. It says meet students where they are. So this is not about having to meet halfway. I want to meet the students where exactly. they are. Exactly. So you spoke a little bit about President Tessie Levine, mm-hmm. or I guess I did too, and your joint effort to reach out to students. Mm-hmm. What? How is the working relationship between you and President Tessie Levine? Because you're both new to the job, right? Right. So, uh, so it's great. Uh, we did not know each other at all uh, sure. before. Um, so I think we first met about uh, maybe last. March or April. Oh, wow. Okay. And then in the fall, he asked me to consider being the provost. And so I, I had this job I really loved, being deep engineering. I mean, that is really a great job. So I had to think hard and I had to think through, was this, given this person that I didn't know very well, and, and our personalities are actually quite different, but it turns out we were just very aligned on principles 
and aligned on where we would like this uh, university to go and sort of general beliefs. And so then the fact that our styles are somewhat different is just loads of fun. Yeah. yeah. Could you elaborate a little more on that? How, how, what exactly differs about the styles? Um, I would say, so Mark is very Canadian. Okay. <laughs> I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, and it's fun. It's just fun. That's good. I really enjoy yeah. uh, working with him. And so transitioning a little more to student life, where do you believe the administration is doing really well with respect to student life? And then where do you believe maybe the administration is lacking a little bit? That's a question for you, isn't it? Where is the administration <laughs> doing well? Um, I'd say these efforts that you and President Jesse Levine have made to reach out to the students. I think a lot of students really appreciate that, and I think that's really great. I think constant updates with regards to the going-ons. I'd say one area that's particularly lacking, you know, this is not, I'm not an expert on this by any means, but uh, sexual assault, I know that you outlined that as one of your priorities, but Mm -hmm. I think towards the end of the year, especially last year, Mm -hmm. that was a very strong concern among the student body, and that was somewhere where a lot of people perceived that, that we were lacking, especially right. when compared to other universities across mm-hmm. the country. We actually had the inter- opportunity to interview Professor Michelle Dauber mm-hmm. from the inter- from the law mm-hmm. school for a podcast episode earlier. Mm-hmm. So listeners, if you want to refresh yourself on that topic, mm-hmm. she had a lot to say. Yeah, but you know, again, I'd say, you know, my personal opinions are not terribly reflective of the student population, mm-hmm. but yeah. Yeah, so I think sexual assault timeline issues are extremely important and I think the student body is has been frustrated there. I hope they're starting to see some uh, progress. I hear uh, particularly a lot of praise for the confidential support team resources. Seems to be working very well. Yeah. I'd say another area where I've heard a lot of frustration from students is around uh, mental health mm-hmm. and the resources devoted. It, it, it seems we don't seem to be meeting the student need in that area. Interestingly, these are both things that you know affect a huge fraction of our students. And so if the students are frustrated by that, that's a problem I have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And maybe a little introspection on your part. Do you think there's anything that the university has been trying a lot harder to do very better in that maybe students aren't as aware of or that you're not seeing as much response from? I guess that's not a question I've been asking myself. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, th- that has a little bit of the flavor of, is there any place where I'm feeling underappreciated? Okay. And I, I, I don't. Yeah, okay. Well, that's I good. Don't. I think uh, that's... Students have been willing to have really, I think, very good, helpful conversations. As I say, I, I feel I'm learning a lot and hope to continue to do that. And it's fun. Yeah. And maybe along that same vein. So are there... Sort of any challenges that you're addressing or that you foresee being challenges in the future that maybe students aren't necessarily aware of? And, you know, how do you deal with that? So probably a couple worth mentioning. I think I would really like for students to understand how the institution works to make them more effective at helping us change the institution. That's one thing I'm working on. In fact, we have a a workshop coming up this Saturday that uh, will hopefully, for students who are interested, allow them to just learn a little bit more. I think that very often how the university works is perceived as this black box. Uh And with a little deeper understanding, I think the students can be more effective in helping us 
change. And I guess an, uh, another thing is I'm going out and listening to lots and lots of students. Mark's going out and listening to lots and lots of students. How can we maybe institutionalize the student input a bit better to make it more effective and more helpful? And uh, so that's something I'm just sort of chewing on a bit yeah. in the background. It's I definitely a very big question. Yeah, and I don't think I don't think it's good. There's a, an e- easy answer, but I, I believe there's an answer out there that we are not as effective effective at engaging the student voice. Uh, certainly in the School of Engineering, there was a lot of discussion. Uh, one would hear, say, in curriculum discussions, it was, it was very common for people to be talking about what the students want to learn and how they want to learn it. Also balanced against what the faculty want to teach and what they feel the students should be learning. But I really appreciated that balance. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to bring a little more of that balance to other parts of That's the great. institution. Yeah. Um, and then returning a little bit to what you were discussing about how there's maybe not as much clarity on how the institution mm-hmm. of Stanford works and the administration right. works. I don't mean to boil it down to something very small, but right. maybe just a takeaway for the listeners. Do you think there's one maybe singular instance of something that you wish a lot more people knew about how the institution works or how the administration works? Ooh, one takeaway... I think that the role of the faculty and the role of the administration is a really, Very really different. important and a different one. It's mm-hmm. not just like a corporate governance. There's the role of the board of trustees sure, in sure. their oversight role. And then the way I like to say it is the student's role in the governance of the university is limited by design because students are here for a fairly short time and the institution lasts for Centuries and faculty and administrations tend to be here for a long time. But that doesn't mean the student voice isn't extremely important because effectively the students are the mission, right? Our mission is education and research. If we didn't have students, we don't <laughs> exist. So if students understand that they are in many ways a big part of the mission of the institution, they understand the importance of their role and their voice in helping us get to the future. I mean, very simply, the great research university of 20 years from now is going to be different than we are today. We were different 20 years ago. How do we get to that 20 years from now? Engaging the students will help. It's not the whole answer. Students won't run the university. But without that voice, I'm not sure we can find our way to that future. So figuring out how to do that. Yeah, it's an interesting, yeah, it's an interesting conundrum to be in. But I think it's a good place to be as well. Yeah, so I, think, it's, so it's, it's, I can tell you it's very exciting. Yeah. I think that just about wraps it up, though, for okay. us. Thank you so much. This My was pleasure. fantastic. I think I, I learned a lot personally, so <laughs> that's right. great. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. I know I certainly did. As mentioned earlier, this is our last episode of the season, but be sure to keep an eye out next school year. We'll be doing an all-new publishing schedule, publishing four times a quarter. Um, again, iTunes, KZSU, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcast, you should be able to find us there. On a more personal note, we'll actually be bringing in a brand-new podcast team next year. So this is sadly my last episode with you all. But I had never done anything like this before when we first started two years ago. And I've really enjoyed it. I hope you all have. And I'm really excited to see where this goes in the future. Thanks again. <laughs>